Hello, and welcome back to Unmasked. If this is your first time here, my name is Alex, and I'm your host. If you haven't already, please do us the huge favor of following us on social media. It means so much more than I can ever express being able to see the support, and even if you want to shoot over a DM or comment or anything, I always try to check those and inter interact with you guys as much as possible. So go check that out and share the show with a friend of yours that you think might enjoy it. We've talked to so many different people with so many backgrounds and stories, and you never know who might be able to resonate with some of the, one of the guests that we have on. So please, 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 it would mean the absolute world to me. Today we have writer, philosopher, philosopher, <laughs> philosopher, former professional athlete and model, Lovey. He goes by Lovey, but he'll be talking about his actual name in the episode, but for now we'll just call him Lovey. In this episode, we talk about some stuff I haven't really talked about with anyone else, such as things like psychedelics, philosophy, um, psilocybin, a lot of those kind of things, which is stuff that he kind of is into and passionate about. He's actually writing a book right now that has to do with a lot of that stuff, which we'll also be mentioning. So I don't want to spoil too much for you guys, so I'll just let you guys get to experience it for yourself. So without further ado, I bring to you Mr. Lovey. I've been, I've been, I've been unmasked, unmasked, unmasked. All right, so I actually don't even know your name. I know your Instagram handle, yeah. so I call you Lovegrove. Um, so Lovegrove is my last name. Oh, okay. Um, where the actual name Lovey comes from is obviously that. My full name is Kieran Lovegrove. Um, in baseball, my first year my first day when I got in I spoke to my pitching coach Steve Carsey and he was like oh you know what's your name man I'm like oh Kieran Lovegrove and he just straight up goes yeah I'm not going to remember that <laughs> um Lovegrove you sorry that like you're lovey everyone this is lovey and for the next decade that was pretty much my name in baseball okay do you still go by lovey today yeah I prefer it um yeah it's I don't mind going by Kieran I it's fine um the reason I like lovey is I kind of grew into that name over time yeah um if, if you've ever heard of the term nominative determinism, basically that who you are is determined by your name. Um, okay. It's not a science or anything, but it's a fun little phrase. And the name Kieran in Celtic means little dark one or dark poet by the sea, or it kind of has this, you know, brooding. How is it spelled? K I E R A N. Okay. And there's like seven or eight different ways to spell it. Okay. Um, and so it just kind of had this connotation of. Know, brooding negativity and if you'd known me as a kid growing up that was very much who I was really oh yeah just like uh, from the time I was probably 11 or 12 I suffered from existential crisis and depression and trying to ask these big questions that I had no context or experience on in the okay. world and so it just kind of tore me apart for years and years um, and you know whether you call that nominative determinism or not you know when I started getting called Lovey and I started hearing my name being called across the room as Lovey, I noticed that I perked up to it and that okay. I enjoyed the way it sounded and I enjoyed kind of embodying that name. Okay. It, you know, it's, it's still a part of my last name. It still represents yeah. me, but I would like to go through life embodying this idea of agopic love, just pure source love. I like that, which actually that does make a lot of sense too because with having like I know some some people have certain nicknames and stuff yeah. and their nicknames definitely affect like this is happy and sometimes it's like the opposite yeah or, and, like tiny and these six yeah. seven two hundred and eighty pounds um, yeah, yeah 
but at the same time there's other ones where, like this is bulldog and it's like some guy that's like a hardcore guy or whatever um so i i definitely can see where that t- does take yeah. effect and because I, I used to have such a chip on my shoulder i used to be an angry kid um this really just reminds me like this this is not who you've ever wanted to be you don't want to be an angry person you don't right. want to be um you know this negative pessimistic individual you want to have people excited to see you. you want to see people smile when you show up right that only comes from a like embodying that agopic love and then finally getting to the point where i can look at myself and say all right i love who this is i mm-hmm. love how i'm behaving i love how i am making my reason choices Mm-hmm. And only through that have I finally gotten to the stage where I'm like, all right, I feel comfortable calling myself this because I'm actually trying to live in accordance with those values. Interesting. I like that, though. It's, that's good, though, that you were able to kind of come around to that and lose that chip on your shoulder and <laughs> kind of lose that pride in something that there didn't need to be that kind of pride around. Yeah. I mean, baseball certainly had a way of humbling me. Um so I, I haven't gone over it. I was drafted into professional baseball at 17 and played that for nine years. Okay. Um, that molded who I became because I got in at 17 as an arrogant child who really mm-hmm. thought he knew everything about the world, who you know, had these ideas or these um, you know, visions of grandeur and fame and wealth and all these things. Um, and so I went into baseball originally with the intent of I'm not here to make friends. I'm not here to be, um, you know, a teammate. I'm here to make the big leagues. Mm-hmm. And unsurprisingly, for the first five or so years of my career, I was just a bad teammate. Um, I was, again, angry, temperamental, childish, all the things you maybe expect out of a teenager or an early 20s. Right. Um, and it was through my interactions with the coaches and the staff and other players where I grew up. And I finally turned into <clears throat> the person I feel I wanted to be, which was a good teammate, someone who looked at someone else and said, all right, how can I make their life a little bit better, a little bit easier, or just to make their day even a little bit brighter? Yeah. That's when I started really enjoying showing up each day. And that was towards the very end of my career. And I wanted to carry that off into my, my life outside of the field. What was that specific turning point? Because you said, like, for the first few years you were that bad teammate and stuff was there a certain specific turn point that kind of made it to where you no longer desired or no longer wanted to be that bad teammate that made you kind of like where like where you threatened to be kicked off or something that made it to where it's like oh shit i gotta i gotta change my shit up and i gotta be a better person i wish i could say there was only one moment but i had so many instances of poor decision making that i had a lot of opportunities to learn um, I had a few really incredible coaches. Uh, two that stand out are Travis Ryman and Tony Mancellino. Okay. Um, in my 2016 year, Tony Mancellino called me into his office. I would have been 21, 22. Um, and he basically said, hey, I, I want to ask you a question. I want your honest response. Do you know what your reputation within this organization is? And, you know, I thought, oh, well, I've, you know, I've got a bit of a temper and this thing. And he goes, yeah, you know, all those things. Like, we know that. Do you know what your actual rep- your um, reputation is? Aside from all these things that we're all aware of, and I just had to sit there and go, "No." And he goes, "Everybody thinks you're a pussy." Really? And that uh, he said it in a way where I knew he wasn't insulting me. Yeah, he was saying it in a way that anytime things get difficult, you you break. 
you don't have grit, you don't have toughness. When things really become hard, you can't handle it. And he said it in a way that made me respect him because he was the first person to do so directly to my face without veiling words, without sugarcoating. He said exactly what I needed to hear, despite mm. how painful it was to hear. And he basically said, if you continue down this road of not being a good teammate, of not putting in the work, of not doing the little things, of not showing up as the same guy every day, you're going to be out of the sport. Mm. And do you have so much pride that you wouldn't go play independent ball or play overseas? Like, would you just give up the game because your pride or your ego would be so bruised? That conversation was the start. Like, really the start of turning it around in 2016. 17, I had him again as a manager at the next level. 18, I had him again as a manager at the following level. He was instrumental in my development mm. as a man because I had a really good example to look up to in Tony Mancellino. Just prior to that in 2015, I had Travis Fryman, and he was the person who really allowed me to accept the rage that I carried. Um, there was an incident in Connecticut where I actually punched out a fluorescent light just out of pure blinding rage, you know, bad inning. No reason to do it, but it yeah. of course occurs, and so I've cut up knuckles, and there's fluorescent glass and all of that everywhere in the dugout. And he comes up and calmly, as calmly as I could ever imagine someone doing this situation, just tells me, I don't want to see you in this dugout. Get upstairs to that clubhouse right now. Now, Travis Fryman is a intimidating human being at the best of times. <laughs> that moment, I was more scared than I had ever been of a person. <laughs> Not that he was going to do it, just because I knew I'd let him down. Yeah. And he was such a good person and such a good role model that I felt I had disappointed him. And that was the moment that I started to kind of break as well. Wow. Where it was like, these are people you respect and you're not behaving to the standards you would want to keep mm -hmm. in, in respecting them. And so these are the kind of defining moments in my career. And there are plenty within the, that nine years. Um, but it was just the continued practice of being called out and being objectively told like, hey, this is what we see. Are you going to take this information and actually do something with it? What was the first step that you saw that was towards becoming that better person that you recognized as like, wow, this is different, but I like it. Honestly, it was uh, the, the most important factor in all this was giving up drinking. Um, so I was functionally, I mean, a full-blown alcoholic from the time I was 17 to about 24. Okay. Um, it was a means of calming down the voices in my mind that were ever-present and were causing me a ton of distress because these were the same voices when I was 11, 12, talking about well, why do we exist? What's our purpose? What is all of this? What is reality? This is not stuff that I think a 12-year-old's meant to grasp, and I don't think many people enjoy wrestling with these, but this was just ever-present in my life. Right. And so alcohol was a means of quieting that, but it was very steadily making me lose more and more of myself. Hmm. There are entire chunks of time that I just have no memories from that just never formed any memories. There was, you know, at one point, I was spending about $1,000 a week on alcohol. At one point, I was drinking a bottle every two days. It was just, wow. it became a part of my life to function. How and were you affording this? I When I was drafted, I got a pretty decent signing bonus. And so oh, really? A huge chunk of that was lost to my alcoholism. Wow. Like a huge, I would hate to actually guess how much money was spent on alcohol over the... There was like a three-year period where it was probably upwards of $50,000. A year? 
Uh, no, or, no, total. Over total. that three-year period, it was probably wow. close. Yeah, and it was just, it became this, you know, part of my life. I, I felt like I couldn't live without it. Um, and was that affecting your game? Oh, absolutely. I couldn't recover. I mean, there was a time one year where I took off a quarter of my palm just coming back from a, I was watching a UFC fight, and I just got absolutely obliterated, and, mm. you know, I still functioned very well. At that time, I was an alcoholic, so I still functioned very well. But just catching my foot on a curb and falling down and taking off a quarter of my palm, showing up on the bus the next day, you know, bloody hand, bloody shirt, smelling like alcohol. My trainer's looking at me like, dude, what are you doing? Like, what is going on? Because this was a, at a point where I was really falling apart. There was like a two-week stint there in that 2015 season where I was really falling apart. Um, and I just I didn't think that anyone cared, and I didn't think that anyone was concerned about it. But everyone saw, and people started to voice like, hey, what – like you can't be showing up with a quarter of your palm missing and unable to play mm -hmm. like you almost broke your arm falling over a curb that's not that's not the way we do things um, this was just a 20 year old kid who was trying to escape what was going on in the mind what was it that you were trying to escape that was causing you to drink so much um I I am neurologically a little different whether you call it um, neurodivergent or autism spectrum disorder or ADHD, whichever you know term you want to ascribe to it, I have a mind that just functions differently and doesn't quite understand this, um, what we'll call like society or culture. Okay. I genuinely mean that it doesn't it doesn't click in my mind as something that makes sense to our humanity. And for a long time, all I wanted to do was fit in with the world, and I found it easier to fit in when I was able to think less, or when I was able to articulate less, or mm. when I just didn't have to wrestle with the ideas, and alcohol was the means of doing that. Now, mind you, this was at a time when cannabis was still banned within minor league baseball, and they were testing for it. So I never found my way to cannabis. I'd had experiences with it in, in high school, but it was only when I was 25 where I actually moved away from alcohol into cannabis okay. and it completely changed the way that I spoke to myself. It was still, I mean, it's still a means of altering consciousness, but it instead of numbing me out, it forced me to look at myself and say, hey, why are you being so mean to yourself? Why are you being so cruel all the time? Yeah. And it was that shift from alcohol to cannabis kind of over time and starting to wrestle with some of these... Um, kind of issues that I had been fighting for a long time. I mean, at 21, I had a suicide attempt um, that was, again, fueled by alcohol, but it was simply because I just didn't see anything left in this world that was going to inspire me. At wow. 21, I really thought I had seen everything I needed to see and like lived a life that was what I thought I wanted. I had money. I had a place. I had, you know, at the time I was single and doing whatever I wanted and going out to bars, and I really thought I had kind of lived what I what I thought I dreamed of and it was disappointing and that disappointment led me to go alright there's nothing left mm. now that's obviously the closed mind of a 21 year old who is depressed and alcoholic and on their own and isolated and I'm assuming no no support system no I'd, resources I pushed my family away they were in California I wanted to be independent I wanted to be on my own um, because of this whatever uh my brain does I have object impermanence unless you're in front of me mm -hmm. I typically won't even remember someone exists and this is not a oh I don't care about them it's just a I like to be in a three foot circle mm -hmm. this is about as far as I want my perception to have to extend yeah and I just got to a point where I'd go weeks 
sometimes months without speaking to anybody in my family. Um, I wasn't seeing my friends at all because they were all back in California. I was, you know, young and kind of on my own and thought I knew everything and thought I could take on the world and very quickly found out I couldn't. And Mm. I'm really glad that I was able to... I wouldn't say I'm glad I was able to experience it. I'm grateful that I had the experience and made it through because it's completely painted the direction of my life moving forward. Honestly, I think saying that you're glad to experience it is a healthy thing. I've yeah. Growing up, I had a lot of abuse and a lot of bullshit that happened in my childhood that um, affected me in a lot of different ways. I do say... Maybe not that I'm glad that I went through it, but I'm grateful to have learned those lessons and had those experiences because it taught me lessons that I don't think I could have learned otherwise. This this is what I always talk to people is like the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Mm. Someone can tell you about their experience and now you have the knowledge of their experience. You have the words. Unless you experience it yourself, you don't have wisdom. You can't turn that into usable knowledge. It's just words. You can't reiterate it. Exactly. And like... Someone may explain traumas that they went through, but unless you actually can slip into that world and experience that trauma firsthand, what you're getting is kind of a flat recount. It's, right. it's not the same experience, and therefore you can't draw the same wisdom. Mm-hmm. However, if that person who had the experience is very good at communicating, they can maybe parcel that wisdom up and put it into something that makes sense. And these are the phrases I think you see you know, that are cliche, that exist everywhere because they are absolutely true. They are parcels of wisdom that we kind of pass off as bumper stickers, but these things are meaningful if you really take the words. Absolutely. So I feel like there's a lot here that stems from a lot. And one of the big things I like to do with guests on here is going back as far back as you're comfortable with, um, kind of taking me through some of the most influential experiences um, or people maybe that influence you the heaviest or just things that you personally feel that have formed you most into who you are today yeah um, so this is I was born in South Africa uh, Johannesburg and then at one moved to Cape Town and then at five moved to LA and when I first came to the States early on in one of I think my first or second year um, I got to go see a Dodger game and I got to stand at home plate with Paul Duca for the national anthem that was the formative memory that made me latch onto baseball and say, "This is what I want to do. I want to. I want to step foot on these fields when I'm an adult." Okay. That I know was kind of what set the course of my life to take that as my pursuit. From there, I kind of discredited many years of being a kid who just asked that question "Why?" all the time and questioned everything and wanted to dive into all these different subjects. And I had put so much of my emphasis to baseball that that really did dominate my mind for a long time. Mm. I kind of look back at that now and I go, all right, was that of my own volition or was that influenced by my father or was that, you know, uh, a core memory that I just held on to and said, this is what I'm going to do no matter what? It makes me think like, all right, one little shift here, one little shift there, and your whole life looks very different. But for me, that instance of being able to step on a field with a pro baseball player at a young age and see what that was like, without a doubt is what kind of set the tone. It's only until post my playing career, or actually not even post my playing career, um, during the pandemic where I really got to sit and go, all right, 
without baseball, what am I? Hmm. If if all of a sudden baseball doesn't exist, if all of a sudden I don't get picked up after this, what do I do? This has been my life at that point for 22 years. It had been all I'd ever wanted to do. And now I had to wrestle with, this may not be something you can do. You may not have the option to continue doing this. And it was in that moment where I really had to think, all right, long-term, what do we want to be? And I knew I didn't want to work for anybody. And I knew that I couldn't really work in corporate and I couldn't do a lot of the things um, that a lot of people can do to make money because it actually makes me suicidal. This is, I've noticed the, the biggest trigger for me is working in a purposeless way. Hmm. Um, I've been reading a lot of, of the myth of Sisyphus, but a Sisyphean task, which is futile and difficult. And that is to me what a lot of this world has now built in is just futile, difficult work to occupy your time. And once that time's occupied, nobody who's actually raking in the money has to worry about it. Yeah. This is going to get me off in the walls. We don't want to go down that subject. No, but, honestly, like, I'm fine with going in any direction <laughs> that. But it was just, yeah. it was, it took me from the time I was five to the time I was 27, 26, 27 to actually go, okay, let's re-examine ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it is now something I do consistently. I consistently look and say, am I following the path I want to? Am I, am I going the right direction that I know is right for me? Um, I use river metaphors a lot, but I think everyone has a river that they float down. Mm -hmm. It's called metaphysical river. You have the leeway to go left and right. You can swim yourself down the river faster, or you can try and swim upstream. Ultimately, it's all going to lead back to the same place. No matter how much you struggle against the current, it will eventually lead you back to the ocean. No matter how much you want to go to the far left side of the bank, you are still held in by the parameters that are set prior to your existence. Mm -hmm. There are things that are set in motion long before you come into being that really determine the parameters of what your life can be. I think when you constantly examine yourself and you look and you really find out, all right, this is the edge of my being this way, this is the edge of my being this way, I can be anything in the middle. And I can either try and force my way down the river or I can fight against it, or I can just sit and let it take me and actually enjoy the experience of moving at the pace that the universe has already determined is right for you. It was the constant re-examination that brought me back to that understanding and made me realize I'm free to do as I please. I really, truly am free to do anything I want Mm -hmm. as long as it is something that I want. If it's something that I feel is necessary to survive, if it's something that I feel is um, obligatory that I have to do it, it will immediately shut me down to the point of, like I said, suicidality where I don't want to engage with anything because I'm now selling my life to do something that is not meaningful or purposeful to me. I feel like that's hard to combat, though, especially in today's society. Extraordinarily. Like, in a perfect world, I would love to be able to do this full-time, do my passions full-time. Unfortunately, due to being in a society where it's completely ran by money and completely influenced by deep pockets and all that, you can't do that. Yeah. You have, like, I I currently work as a delivery driver for Amazon. That's far from what I want to do as a career. But it's how I'm able to do stuff like this because I make the money in a certain way. And, like, I would love to be able to just be like, you know what? I don't want to do that anymore. That's not my path. That's not fulfilling a purpose. 
I do have to look at it, and I, I agree that you have to be doing something that's purpose-driven, because if you don't, it's purposeless. Yeah, then the burnout comes very fast. Exactly. And, and all sorts of things come into play. And so I do have to, like, every single day when I go into work, I have to think, like, I'm serving other people still. I'm helping them get their packages. I'm helping them. I don't know what this package is. It could be life-saving. It could be something as simple as getting a stupid phone. Yeah. I mean, a gift for like, someone's birthday that's later that yeah. night. Yeah. I'm, I'm helping it's, them, though, in certain ways. It's that way. way of thinking. When I, I was recently working as a personal trainer at um, a gym that I won't name, but I really enjoyed the work. Yeah. If it was just personal training. But because of corporatization, everything that we were being told was not take care of your clients, make sure they're trained. It was sell them on upgrades, sell them on supplements, sell them on this, yeah. sell them on that. They were actually training their... Um, people to target the insecurities of individuals as they walked in the door. I have serious issues with the way that people get treated in corporatization. And this especially, we're talking about an industry that should be focused on the betterment of human population by doing the one thing that across the board in every single study shows improvement in life. This is health, longevity, strength, mental health, every single study, every single aspect of life improves by this. And they are treating it in a way that actively dissuades people from showing up to the gym. Because if they have memberships of people that don't actually show up because they feel guilty about signing up for what should have been a $10 membership and they got upsold to a $50 a month membership and they feel foolish, they're not going to go back in. On top of that, they make the contract so impossible that getting out of it costs more. Mm -hmm. And then you get into the personal <laughs> training contracts and like, they were paying $73 an hour, the clients, and the trainers were making seventeen fifty. Are you serious? Yes. And that's only for the hours that you actually were able to train. Other hours you were getting paid thirteen fifty. You only had one of those hours available per day that you were working, essentially. Like it it was so bad that I called up the people that I did uh, the minor league union effort with. Yeah. And I was like, yo, can we take down this particular gym? And they were like, well, yes, we could take down that one gym, and then they'll just close it. Yeah. They'll just close the gym if you decide to bring those workers together to fight for fair wages and fair treatment. That's what that corporation would do. So then I said, all right, can we take on the whole gym industry? And they were like, absolutely not. <laughs> no. We did baseball with six people because we did it in a very different way taking on the entire gym industry, you need thousands and thousands and thousands of workers. Probably even more than that. It's such a growing, like, there's it's, it's so many different gyms. There's so many different... And they all have their behind deals where it's like, yeah. all right, we're all going to operate this way because if you don't, if you give the illusion of choice without actual personal autonomy, then people are going, oh, well, I'm going to go to Lifetime. I'm going to go to EOS. I'm going to go to this. I'm going to go to that. They're all the same. They're all going to treat you the same. They're mm -hmm. all going to lock you into contracts. They're all going to play on your insecurities. Yeah. Why are we continuing to allow this to happen, not just in the gym industry, in every single industry, for the people who are more than necessary to make it run? I mean, quite literally, the only reason it still exists, the ones who are treated the absolute worst, or the ones who are killing, I love this line, killing themselves to make a living wage. <laughs> That's what we're seeing, is people are selling their lifeblood to eat. Mm-hmm to give their kids a chance. Like it's it's going to change. It's going to shift. There's going to be a new wave of people that come in that have to make this change. Well, I think a lot of personal trainers now are independent. 
rather yes. than like going and the amount of like uh, when I go to my gym, the amount of flyers I see with oh become a personal trainer like they want to hire them and I'm like I'm not like even as a client I don't want to go to you guys for that. Dude. I want to find <laughs> the buff ass influencer on Instagram who I can see working yeah. out and who I can see has results. I want to go to him. Yeah. Do you want to know how long it took me to get my certification to personal train people? Now, mind you, I have nine years of professional baseball experience learning from the best strength coaches in the world. Like, I'm not clueless. It took two days to get certified to train people. <laughs> and quite honestly, some of the people I was in that class with, I was like, you should not have the right to train people. Yeah. If you don't know these basics, like, this is dangerous at this point. What is it even like? the personal training thing like what separates you what does that certification separate you from me mean um it means you spent a total of 12 hours learning really really rudimentary fitness ideas and then getting tested on them in a way that is like what kind of ideas though um basically the movements so you have your different planes your sorry your sagittal your frontal um your transverse planes to the different planes of movement, your adduction, um, abduction, you know, raising leg, and then kind of the muscle groups. Okay. Um, and then kind of how like neuromuscular facilitation works, basically activating muscles. So it's kind of like an overrated anatomy lesson. Yeah, it's a super basic, like this is how to do, you know, a five-week program essentially. And it was just kind of disappointing to me thinking, all right, People are coming into these gyms thinking they're going to get actual help. They're going to get professional help. Yeah. And what they're getting are some kids who got thrown into a class and hired because the other personal trainers left because they weren't getting paid fairly enough. Mm. And you have this constant turnover rate. It doesn't work. Like, it, it just doesn't. Or I should say it won't continue to work. And the reason the attrition rates are so bad and the reason people are leaving is at one point I was working five days a week, seven to eight hours a day. And I was just barely making $1,600 a month. Working as a person. And that means picking up weights, moving it on your feet for seven hours a day. But that's also working for like a corporate gym. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, because I remember when I was, um, I was at a branch of the gym that I go to in a different city. Mm. And I was seeing some of the personal trainers there. And, and at first, I just thought they were like workers. I didn't think they were trainers. Yeah. Until I saw them training people and I'm like, how do you trust this guy to train you? He is a twig. Yeah, like, and it's like there's no for, you, you, you gotta be able you, you gotta be able to be a product of what you sell. Well and that was the part is while working there, I couldn't train. I couldn't eat properly. I couldn't afford to eat properly. Yeah. I didn't have the time to cook. I didn't have the time to train because I was already in there thirty five hours a week. I, I didn't want to do another ten hours mm-hmm. on my own time. Like those walls were starting to drive me insane. This right. you know for four months they had the same playlist where I was hearing the same <laughs> song four or five times a day like that was that was kind of the breaking point for me where I was like I it's not a matter of what I'm doing mm-hmm. it's if someone's telling me to do it a certain way and I'm sitting there going not only are you fundamentally incorrect in what you're telling me to do but I also have 10 years like I have a PhD in baseball and biokinetics essentially like I spent 10 years studying the human body and how to move it as fast as physically possible while maintaining its health. Right. Not to mention studying nutrition and literally neurobiology and how the brain affects musculature and how it works. 
they eventually started just sending me all the like really difficult clients, I guess. Mm. You know, people who had had surgery that fused their, their neck to their spine, people who had had strokes that were paralyzed in half their body for 40 years. Like, people that should be in physical therapy, people that not, should be not with a personal trainer. And then when you hear what happens to these people in physical therapy and when they go to see their doctors, you realize, oh, there's another problem. Mm. Those industries don't care, nor do they know what they're doing. Mm. Like, th- this is to me, this was the most shocking thing. I had five clients that had all come from different physical therapies, all dealing with different issues. A lot of it had to do with muscular activation in the posterior chain, like glutes, back, and like shoulders and scaps. They were like, yeah, I spent thousands of dollars to get this fixed. Like I can't get my arm above my shoulder or um, one of my clients had a fused neck. And like when she came to me, she was staring at the floor. Like her spine was so rounded that she was staring at the floor and had to look up at me kind of through her brow. And within four months, we had her standing up about three inches taller, you know, eyes clear. She had lost 20-something pounds. And this was someone who had spent thousands of dollars on professional rehab at physical therapy places and doctors and second Mm -hmm. opinions. And it was just by understanding the connection of the brain to the muscles that if you can activate the muscles that aren't doing their job and even them out, you can even out the entire body. Yeah. I mean, the skeletal system does nothing. It is just structure. Your entire body is determined by how you move your muscles and how well connected your brain is to your muscles. Like strength is not determined by muscle size, it's determined by muscular activation. Two people who weigh the exact same and have the exact same muscle mass, if one has 40% muscular activation and one has 80, one's twice as strong. Right. And that strength is the determining factor of longevity and health in every single aspect, whether it's grip strength or like glute muscle size and strength, all of those determine longevity and health and they're not being addressed in the general public, and we actually live a life that is directly negatively affecting that. I mean, sitting turns off the posterior chain and the entire back chain. Yeah. I mean, it's, we don't yeah, we get into it. Like, the calf muscle that is the single most important thing for pumping blood back through your body next to your heart, the soleus muscle, is not activated, especially if you're wearing traditional footwear, which is cushioned and toed, you know, bowed in. Yeah. You're now not activating those muscles or tendons at all. You're just using your kind of lower leg as a single unit. And that's really, really, really detrimental when you're talking about getting blood flow and lymphatic drainage in your body. And so all of these things started to connect, you know, one to the other. And this is on top of the research I ended up doing for the book, which I'd like to get to. But yeah, yeah. It made me realize, oh, we are really off track mm-hmm. with just what it means to be human, with what optimizing humanity looks like we can try and do it through all the different technologies but humans and you can just say hominins in general so the last four million years or so were incredibly successful i mean true natural marvels and we have taken this very short period of time in the last let's say ten thousand years and ascribed every bit of importance to that ten thousand years completely throwing away the previous 3.9 million years of our actual development. Mm -hmm. It got to the point where I really realized that the only purpose that I have is to try and share this idea of bringing back this archaic way of being a human. Um, It's a term that Terrence McKenna uses a lot, the archaic revival, bringing back values of the archaic human that are separate from that of society and culture that we have layered upon, you know, that we've 
absolutely just layered upon our world and said, this is what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. If you live in this place with these people and you have these ideas, that's what it means to be human. But if you live 30 miles that way and you do things differently, well, they're not human anymore. We dehumanize them and they're now the enemy. It's a ridiculous way of being. When you consider that symbiosis from a natural perspective is the most effective means of survival for any organism. It's very interesting when I think of how different cultures, Mm -hmm. even in today's modern society, of how different cultures and stuff, depending on where they are as far as like evolution and stuff go, Mm -hmm. um, whether, because I've seen some videos of like, these tribes in desolate islands that still have not had industrialization Mm. that don't know what a smartphone is and stuff and um, they work a lot but they don't work the same way as we do they don't work the same way as people in China or Japan the way that they worked 80 hours but they work with electronics and stuff the way that Americans work 40 hours doing this and then do all that and how like They've gone to these different places and they're like, oh, like, how, how often do you train? And they're like, what do you mean train? We don't train, we work. Yeah, I mean, Our training is our work. Wh- one of my favorite examples that, um, are you familiar with UFC at all? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Francis Ngannou. Do you know how he got that strong? Mm-mm. Digging sand. When he was in Cameroon, he dug sand. And that's what he did for pretty much his entire life. Just moving sand, moving sand, moving sand. That builds a different level of strength. Oh, yeah. A complete, and again, that's just muscular activation. It's just pure needing to use your muscles. Yeah. But when I really started to, like, because I played baseball and because I got to see what human optimization looked like firsthand and seeing these people that were the biggest, the fastest, the strongest in the world, this is, uh, I wish people would understand this more about baseball. They are the most incredible, not all of them look like it. Mm -hmm. They're the most incredible athletes on the planet in the respect that they have to move in such a bizarre way for such a short period of time to do a number of very skilled things well. I mean, if, if you just see a ball get hit up the middle and a shortstop range and grab it with his glove and spin and throw, and he makes it look smooth, everyone goes, oh, that doesn't look hard. Realizing that he just covered a distance that was 95th percentile of speed, mm-hmm. reaching down to get a ball and then throwing it 120 feet while spinning to a target that's maybe mm, like 18 square feet. Yeah. I had um, Jet Johnson. Yeah, um, I know DJ. I um, had him on the podcast yeah. just recently, and we were kind of talking about just all the different training and stuff that happens and the yeah. fact, like, I've gone to batting cages. Uh, I played Little League and stuff, so I'm like, I'm going to these batting cages, and I'm like, okay, cool. Um, and, like, they have, like, the different speeds that you can have the ball thrown yeah. at you. I'm like, let's do 80. Easy. I go in the batting cage, and the ball's coming, I see it whiz by me. I'm like, what the fuck? And because on the on when you're watching these baseball games, it's being thrown at nearly a hundred miles an hour. Yeah, like a, a fastball can be up to like 120, 130 miles an hour, and the from the mound to the plate, you have pretty much like a point two yeah, you have, second reaction is, time. If you blink, you miss it. And actually, a ball moving at 90 miles an hour, the last 10 feet, your eyes can't perceive it. Yeah, you can't even take in that data. Baseball players are kind of these weird superhumans that don't look like it or don't seem like it, but you've been here for spring training, I assume. I haven't, like, watched any of the spring training. But just training. in Arizona. Oh, yeah, yeah, And you're yeah. walking around, and you're like, well, who the fuck is that guy? Yeah. And you go, oh, that's a baseball player. That's yeah. a baseball player. And you see them, and you're like, they walk around differently. 
because obviously they're the average. I think the average size across the MLB is like six one, two hundred pounds. That's mm. average. That includes second baseman. That includes the little guys. Like yeah, that is a big human being to move as fast as they do and to do the things they do. Right. That was kind of what just sparked my curiosity. And then obviously, as I said, in the pandemic, having to re-examine. And then it came to, well, what if we're wrong about humans? What if we're just flat out wrong about our axioms of what it, what made human human? Hmm. And this all started back November of 2020 when I'd really spent months in a horrible cannabis-fueled depression of just what am I, who am I, sitting around doing nothing. If there's no baseball, who am I? And this idea came... Um, upon watching a video on psychedelics. Now, mind you, I had been fed the same propaganda as everybody. Right. Like, oh, it'll melt your brain. You'll jump off a building thinking you can fly. All the same stuff. I never really took much interest in psychedelics as a kid. Uh, it never sparked my curiosity. Even when I was through my 20s, I never tried any of them. Hmm. It wasn't until I was, yeah, 26, where a video just kind of made me go, oh, that's different. That's a different way of thinking about mushrooms. Like, this guy took it and it was from a show called Evil on Netflix. Guy takes mushrooms and speaks to God. And just that little like fictitious uh, story made me go, all right, I want to revisit these. These mm -hmm. seem interesting. And I started watching a video and there was one little clip where a professor from Berkeley shows an fMRI of a, I think a five-year-old's brain um, and then an fMRI of an adult brain on LSD. And essentially what fMRIs do is they'll show the blood flow to the areas of the brain to see what areas are activated during um, that time period. Okay. The thing that just clicked in my brain was seeing these two images side by side, the five-year-old and the adult brain on LSD, and recognizing that they almost look identical in the areas that are lighting up. Mm. Now, does this mean that five-year-olds are all on LSD? No. <laughs> but does it mean that the state produced by a psychedelic, what we'd call a serotonergic agonist, um, they all of the classic psychedelics attached to a certain receptor, the 5-HT2A ser or the serotonin 2A receptor in the brain. And they cause this synaptic explosion, essentially. Um, all of a sudden you go from just for the sake of numbers, let's say 100 synaptic connections is your normal baseline. Uh, that's obviously way off, but just for the sake of numbers. Mm -hmm. Say you take psilocybin or you take mescaline or you take LSD. Um, what happens is those synaptic connections will essentially multiply 10, 100-fold, and your brain will find new ways of creating patterns of, oscilla of essential, like, electrical oscillation, essentially the way in which your brain operates is sending those electrical signals at a certain frequency and a certain oscillation. It allows that to happen in a way that is so broad and so incredible that you're taking in more information than you ever have. Mm. And if you ever wonder why children are so fucking weird, Imagine them being on a psychedelic drug all the time. Why do they have imaginary friends? Why do they see things we don't? Why do they hear things we don't? Why do they have certain intuitions that we can't comprehend? Well, if they're receiving this information in this extremely broad sense, and they're not filtering it like we do, then they are speaking more true than we are. They don't have all of the pruning down of this is what reality is. Mm -hmm. They're just experiencing it pure and raw, and then just saying what they see. Right. And we discredit them, but their brain's working just fine. In fact, it's working more efficiently than ours is. It's just not working efficiently to a boxed-in society. Right. That was kind of the moment when I said, all right, something about the brain and these substances is linked. 
the thing that made sense to me at the time was, okay, if the 5-HT2A receptor is responsible for neocortex growth, this outer shell of the brain, which is where essentially what we consider makes us human, is that we have the largest neocortex of any animal, and the language tends to go up in the front, and like forethought and um, prediction, that all comes from the neocortex. The idea being that something catalyzed the growth of that. And if this substance, let's use psilocybin, because that would have been the naturally available one, if that was a part of our diet and not a drug or a sacrament, it was just something that these ancient hominins found on the plains of Africa while they were following the undulates, you know, the cattle and the wildebeest and the elephants and all these massive animal elephants aren't undulates, but if they just came across these mushrooms, which, mind you, are 90% water, and they ate them and they went, wow, I can see more clearly, and all of a sudden I can hear different, and oh, I like this person a lot more. If it completely changes the way that you look at the world, and it completely changes the way that you relate to other organisms, that to me is a pretty powerful catalyst for what might have been the reason that humans separated themselves so greatly from the other animals. Hmm. Is not that we all of a sudden gained access to meat and were able to get more calories and our brain grew. We were able to tap into something that is much larger and older and more intelligent than ourselves and form a, let's call it a symbiotic relationship with it. We, we often only think about sentience in the human sense. I don't believe that's the case. Um, if you've ever taken larger doses of mushrooms, you know that there is something else there. And it is much larger and it's much older and it's much, much more intelligent. I, I have I've never dabbled in psychedelics myself. So, so this is this is one of the, I'm I'm not one of the people who proselytizes like oh everyone needs to do it. Yeah. I actually do not think that that's the case. I I support it in a way of trial by person mm -hmm. in a way that like now it's being kind of experimented with with uh, correlations to depression and anxiety yeah. and stuff and how um, there's like the Huberman lab. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Of how he explains of how a lot of universities have now been granted access yeah. to be able to experiment with the effects of psilocybin and um, like they've experimented with veterans with PTSD. This, and yeah, this started back in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. Um, and what it showed incredible promise on was alcoholism. It was one of the most potent medications for alcoholism that was ever shown. Yeah. It was the most efficacious. Uh, and then of course 1969 things go wrong 1970 drug act and it's put at schedule one yeah now schedule one means highly addictive large chance for abuse and societal harm let's really break that down when it comes Isn't to cannabis on that list cannabis was schedule one for a long time yeah. uh, mescaline dmt and uh, lsd are all on it along with heroin and cocaine now if you look at psilocybin I would challenge anybody to get addicted to it. <laughs> I mean, truly, like that, that sounds a little crass, but like if you took a five gram trip, go ahead and try it the next day. Yeah. Go ahead and see if you want to. If you do, great. You'll have a really diminished effect because the other thing about psilocybin is that our body, our body tolerates it better than any other drug, better than caffeine, better than really? aspirin, better than anything. Our body, that. it would take, this is, I love this, it would take 50 pounds of wet mushrooms to die. I don't even think a person could person eat that much. A person can't eat that much, physically. 
So yeah. psilocybin in terms of its effect on the body is incredibly innocuous. Its effect on the mind is a little bit different. Hmm. If you're somebody who your entire life has had a very narrow view and all of a sudden it gets blasted open to you are perceiving things that you didn't think existed and you have a if you have a very tight hold over what you believe this reality is it's going to be an unpleasant transition to finding out that you don't know a fucking thing about it because that, that is what sense. it does it yeah. immediately exposes you as knowing nothing and this is coming from somebody who tried to know everything about the world from a scientific and rational and logical point of view up until my 28th birthday when all of that was shattered and it was like you're a child <laughs> among the real things that are going on among the the archetypal intelligences if you want to call it that but it was shocking to me how this had been kept under wraps for so long when it had the ability to completely shift the way that you looked at not only yourself but the world yeah and in a way that I believe is overwhelmingly positive, even if you have a quote-unquote bad trip, it always teaches you what you need, it just never does it in the way that you want. It will always give you what you need. Mm. A lot of people don't like to accept what they need. And this, is, you know, this goes into, if you're going to do a mushroom trip, let it do what it's going to do. It's, it's smarter than you. It will show you whatever you need to be shown, but if you fight it, if you think you know better, it will humble you, and it will, it can, in essence, destroy you. It'll yeah. say, oh, this is what you think you are, this is what you, you know, believe you are, your persona and your, your ego to be, <laughs> all gone. And see, I think that is where the experimentation of, like, I support it in a way that to have guided trips, to have a professional who has, because obviously every substance, you need to take a certain amount for it to have a certain effect. You can't give yeah. a twenty-pound baby the same dosage of anything that you give a two hundred-pound man. Yeah, and so that's why I do believe that in a regulated form, but a healthy regulated. I'm not talking like FDA comes in. Yeah, like, what's like, going to make hey, the most we've money? We've extracted just the psilocybin yeah. molecule. I'm like, no, because you you're leaving out. Uh, yeah. Biosystem and norbiosystem, which are essential. Yeah, for I'm that. talking someone who, yeah. like, Huberman Lab. If they were to go through and kind well, of put, it's funny because he changed his opinion on it. He yeah. was he was pretty weary of psychedelics. Uh, you can even hear it in some of his earlier episodes. Yeah, um, and of course he brought in some incredible speakers. Um, you know, and was explained, hey, this is what's actually happening. This is what the literature says. And he's completely changed his mind on it. Right. And he said, you know, this is, this could be incredibly beneficial for people who suffer from certain ailments, not because it's a panacea, not because it's a universal medicine. It is a, you can consider it, I consider it condensed therapy. Yeah. I consider it six years of therapy and six hours. It forces these things to the front of your mind where if you've been ignoring a truth, it just throws it in your face and says, you can't ignore this anymore. If you do, you're going to feel miserable. Mm. If you don't ignore it anymore, yes, it might be difficult. Yes, it might be painful. Yes, it might be all these things that we have to go through. But ultimately, this is the path. Now, obviously, it's interesting talking to someone who hasn't experienced it because when I say these words, it sounds a little insane, right? Like It's showing you the way to go. It's communicating with you. But for those 
for those who have, I really think that that's a yeah a common kind of threat. I mean, it's not the first time that I've heard that, and I know that a lot of people like microdose it, and it yeah. helps them a lot. But like for me to feel comfortable doing something like that, I would need it to be by someone who is heavily experienced and not like they have they're thinking of it in a certain connotation. They're yeah. not thinking of like I want to give you the biggest trip of your no, life. No, I want it to be by someone who's like what's your weight what's this um what's your experiences and they kind of tailor it exactly to where like okay if you take this amount it's not going to make you go batshit crazy (laughs) and have the walls talk to you here's here's what i would say to anyone who thinks that they can predict what's going to happen on a mushroom trip they're arrogant yeah because i've taken 0.5 of a gram and had really mind-bending experiences 0.5 of a gram is nothing especially to someone of my size Mm mm-hmm and I've had really mind-bending experiences and I've taken five and I've taken seven grams and had really like <sighs> trips that kind of obliterate you. I wouldn't want people to go through that unless they desire to. Right. It's, it's something that I think is innate to my being that I really like to explore the depths of that consciousness that I really want to expand my mind. I've always been like that. I've always been very, very open-minded to I just want to see what's out there. I, I now have the knowledge that I know nothing, which yeah. was kind of the gift I got from the mushroom. And so I'm free to just say, what is there? What's yeah. out there? What what can I learn? What can I try to gain experience on? And, you know, try to actually, you know, enjoy firsthand. So tell me about this book. Yes. We're so we've kind of... Coming up in an hour here. Yeah, we jumped around a little bit. Book. So let's just say that all of these things have kind of gone into what I am now writing. Um, at my essence, maybe you've noticed I'm a bit of a philosopher. I just like to philosophize on life. Mm-hmm. And what started as a what, essay that was going to be my entrance to college to go back to school, um, when I was playing out my final year, I decided, all right, no, this should be a book. Like, if I go to academia, it's going to be slow. It's going to be bureaucratic. It's going to annoy me. I don't want to do it. I'm just going to turn this this idea into a book. And so was born the Naked Sapien. And that's a playoff of a name, uh, The Naked Ape, which was written in 1968 by Desmond Morris, which was kind of the same idea, looking at humans as an animal. That book, I think, is a little bit outdated and a little bit misogynistic at times. In 1968, you know, what are you going to do? I started looking at the axioms of which we believe are human. The first thing, I, I started with the ground up. We became bipedal, and we are unique among primates in our bipedalism. Why was bipedalism so important? Well, first thing, our ability to run became significantly more efficient. And combine that with sweat glands and our ability to respirate, we became incredible runners. I mean, truly, we became incredible runners. And what this allowed us to do was a form of hunting called persistence hunting. Now, this is used by wolves. This is used by pack canids like African wild dogs. Essentially, they just run an animal to its absolute limit. You know, maybe they'll take bites at its legs when they can, but they're just running it until it collapses. And if it's well organized, you'll have different groups that are kind of heading it off so that the distance that animal is running is longer than the distance any of the individual canids have to run. Very, very efficient hunting strategy, which you have to if you have a pack. You have to consistently take down animals. Humans took this and I think improved upon it. Instead of kind of doing it haphazardly, we would set up locations and drive animals and then drive them and then drive them and then drive them. And because undulates like 
wildebeest and antelope and cattle can only cool their body temperature by panting. If they're consistently running, they can't pant. Mm-hmm. And so their body temperature steadily rises until essentially they collapse from heat exhaustion. And the hunters can come up and just, damn, you have a kill without risking the health of any of your hunters. It's purely a mechanistic way of getting food. That, I think, was a turning point in which humans no longer had to compete for resources. If you can guarantee yourself a kill pretty much any time you go out and run for three hours, you no longer have to compete. You have claimed dominion over your environment to a degree that other animals cannot. So I think moving away from the competitive model starts right there, and you move into a much more cooperative model. Because even if you come across another tribe and there's a herd of 100,000 wildebeest, why the fuck would you fight over that? What are you going to do, have them all? Like, You go, oh, you guys want food, we want food. Like, Let's go get a bigger one. Mm-hmm. And now cooperation becomes the norm. It becomes that symbiotic thing I talk about, which is essential for all organisms. So I believe that became the first thing, is through bipedalism, we developed uh, persistence hunting, and all of a sudden, we now have access to this food. That moves into our diet, which obviously changes because we have access to meat, but secondarily, if we're following these undulates along the plains, the most common thing you see growing out of undulate dung are these massive, massive psilocybe uh, mushrooms. There are, I've seen some in the wild, I mean, that big, and there's clusters <laughs> of them. And again, they're 90% water. So if you're on the plains of Africa, and let's say it's maybe the dry season, and the only water that can be extracted from the earth is chewed up in the grass by these undulates, processed, and then come out as dung, the dung has a high moisture content, but is inedible. And then you have these mushrooms that are essentially taking the nutrients from the dung, turning it into its constituent atomic parts, and reforming it in this high fiber, high mineral, protein, high water food. Hmm. If humans had created a kind of monopoly on mushrooms, and granted, I think they could have done it easily, because if we can navigate the complexity of plants, we can absolutely navigate the complexity of mushrooms. I think this became a relationship that was deeply entwined into the human diet for a long time. Not just psilocybe mushrooms, but mushrooms in general. These are also species that lived in the jungles as they started to recede and become savanna. And the most common thing you see decaying trees are saprophilic mushrooms, mushrooms that eat decaying wood. And a lot of those are edible and a lot of them are really nutritious. Mm. So that first axiom I said, all right, if mushrooms were part of the diet, you completely change what we believe to be human. We currently look at diet as fruits, vegetables, all these things. None of it existed. We have to be really clear about this. Absolutely none of that existed. The, The way we look at vegetables today most of them are specifically bred to look a certain way over the last, eh, let's say, a couple thousand years total, maybe. Oh, yeah. So why are we saying that those are essential to the human diet as it has always been? Especially when our body doesn't break down cellulose, plant fiber. We break down chitin. Some people break down chitin. Some people don't. But chitin has been present in our diet long before we were human. Insects, crustacean shells, and mushrooms are all made of it. So looking at our diet differently, I think, is a really important thing, especially when we consider what people are eating today. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, if these psilocybe mushrooms did end up as a part of our diet, they may have been the catalyst behind language. And a lot of these ideas mirror Terence McKenna's stoned ape theory. Um, And, you know, I, I came to the conclusion prior to knowing who Terence McKenna was, but when I started looking at his work, I was like, yes, this is what I'm talking about. The idea being that 
when taking psilocybin, it kind of offers three different states of intoxication. At really low levels, it really sharpens up your eyesight. People experience this. It feels like there are more layers of detail and that you can see uh, edge, dete edge detection becomes a lot clearer. So for a hunting animal, that could be very useful. For an animal that's trying to find things when foraging could be very useful. At slightly higher doses, it promotes social behavior and more specifically, orgiastic behavior. Now, if you have a species that is now having more sex, they are also more likely to reproduce. And if they have dominion over their environment where food is not a limiting factor, they can reproduce exponentially. Mm -hmm. They don't have to worry about it. So that would be extremely beneficial for an organism that's trying to sustain its numbers. If all of a sudden orgiastic behavior became part of the being. Orgiastic behavior has another benefit, which is you can't track paternal lineage in an orgiastic society. Um, you can only know who the mother is, and it's more likely that ancient or archaic human structures were more matriarchal. They were more like bonobos than chimpanzees. And this is what led to the next section, which is entirely about human sexuality. I believe our paradigms around human sexuality are horribly, horribly wrong simply because the last 10,000 years have been a reaction of male domination within pretty much all cultures. Um, and that was, I believe, a response to the cataclysms of the Younger Dryas, where you had these massive sea level rises and floods and rains and massive environmental destruction. I think the response to that was, hey, we need to defend our land, get our food, hoard it. And it became this kind of smash and grab mentality as a response to cataclysm but then unfortunately we never worked our way back out of it i think up until that point we were communal we were cooperative we were liberated we were heterodox and we were matriarchal and we were ultimately a symbiotic animal that tried to be symbiotic with all other animals because again that's the best model yes this is very idealistic yes this is you know utopic and all that but if you look at how humans even interact today we're not violent. Like we're, there is violence among humans. But we're not inherently violent. But we are not beating each other senseless because there's a female, you know, in the other part of the room. And if I you, mean, in some instances. In some instances, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, fueled by alcohol, that certainly will we'll do that. I'm sure if you gave bonobos alcohol, they would start beating each other up too. Mm -hmm. But the essential, you know, crux of that is there are two different kind of means of of structuring your sexuality and, and as a species. What we see from gorillas and chimpanzees is this tournament style species. You have a single, let's call it alpha, I hate that term, but like you have your alpha or your dominant male. Typically their brothers or cousins make up the other part of that troop. Mm -hmm. And then they have the harem which usually falls to the alpha and so the alpha has breeding rights. And there's a lot of in-play and there's a lot of this cousin's going to try and kill this brother, try and overthrow this brother. And chimpanzees are also extraordinarily territorial, meaning if they see a chimpanzee from outside their troop in their territory, they will run it down and kill it without prejudice. It is a horribly violent kind of culture, society, even chimpanzees. But this is the Gombe chimpanzee war where they would decimate entire lineage of other chimpanzees and then be wiped out themselves. This takes place north of the Congo River. And just south of it, you have a species which is genetically the same in terms of its relation to us as chimpanzees are. They're separated from chimpanzees by about 1.4 million years, but their entire structure and their entire relationship um, to each other is different. 
bonobos are matriarchal. It is the females that kind of lead the troop as a coalition. So the males can't do anything because you typically have multiple females together. The males will stay with their mothers their entire lives, and the females will actually go out of the group to kind of exchange. And they, when they come across other bonobo groups, they are friendly, and they kind of engage in this, um, what I describe as mutual sexual gratification as a means of bonding. Hmm. And so, you know, people have described them as like the loving ape or the horny ape or whatever it is. They diffuse tension through this kind of sexual gratification. Now, I think humans kind of took the same route. And if you look at our morphology, and this is to me the most important thing, our actual physiology matches that idea. Mm-hmm. First of all, we are hairless. We're extraordinarily sensitive to touch. We have white sclera of our eyes so we convey more emotion. Our lips are pinker. Our faces are clear. That's all just for conveying emotion and relating to another being. The thing that I find most fascinating is the male genitalia. Now, I know that's not a very fascinating subject most of the time, but humans are unique in the fact that we don't have a baculum. So the baculum is a bone found in the penis that attaches to muscles. And if you've ever seen uh, like National Geographic and a baboon, when they get erect, it's just a contraction of a muscle. So it just flings it up and down. Hmm. And that's to have very rapid copulation sessions that are designed to inseminate a female. Right. That's the only goal of that. Chimpanzees, similar thing. Gorillas, similar thing. Another thing about primate, uh, primate morphology is chimpanzees have these massive testicles. And the purpose is disgusting. The purpose is to flush out the previous suitor with enough seminal fluid so they produce way, way more than humans do. So Interesting. Let's, let's look okay. at the human morphology. Humans don't have a baculum. We have these two kind of sponge-like tissue that engorge with blood and then seal off, allowing us to maintain erections for significantly longer periods of time. Mm-hmm. Secondarily, we have much, much smaller testicles that produce much, much less sperm than other primates. So there doesn't seem to be a competitive advantage there. When looking at the female anatomy, you have obviously the clitoris, which is 8,000 nerve endings compared to the entire penis, which has 4,000. Like That is a very specific kind of structure mm-hmm. that has clear implications towards female bonding as well and male bonding and there is also studies that show that female orgasm will actually facilitate sperm transfer into the ovaries so all of these things combined to tell me humans were this extremely kind of sexual animal leading up until these cataclysms that explains a lot of our behavior like mm-hmm. a lot a lot of our behavior i think 99% of humans would much rather you know fornicate than fight oh absolutely and i, I think mean the whole, it's usually the entire world is ran by sex and or yeah. sex money like there's literally and it's, it, it's been weaponized now yeah. which is a that's a bigger problem in my opinion but this is i think our natural way of being this more liberated sense and we've moved so far away from it and we've kind of juxtaposed this prudish nature of the Victorian era, which we still hold, to the hypersexuality of the media age, and they sit in direct opposition to each other, where sex is saturated our entire life, mm-hmm. and yet nobody talks about it. Nobody actually has meaningful discussions around what it means to relate to another person through this physical medium. Right. And so that's a discussion I really want to open up, because it is a, it's a big can of worms, but I think it's also a, a very... 
important factor in how we determine how we move forward. Gotcha. And then lastly, it the last kind of rhetoric section is discussing, well, where have mushrooms been in our entire history? So going back to Egypt and moving on forward, in Egypt, Greece, Rome, South America, and India, mushrooms were considered and called either food of the gods or flesh of the gods. That phrasing is the same from Egypt to South America. Hmm. That to me, again, is very, very important that we overlook it. If you look at the Egyptian culture, mushrooms were reserved for priesthood only. Average citizens could not even touch them or see them. Interesting. I think we were already well past the point of the mushroom being held because the knowledge that it contained was so great and that the priesthoods and the people in power said we can't let people have this. Right. Whereas I believe prior to those cataclysms, the natural human religion was this kind of what's called an animist religion. It was the gods of the mountains and the rivers and the streams and the ocean and the deer and all the different things had their kind of god or spirit. And this one substance <clears throat> connected you to it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't, we don't have enough time to go into kind of how the mushrooms teachings got anthropomorphized into what we might consider religion today. But there is theories that pretty much say that, that those teachings, which are ever present in all religions, originally came from this single source and then have just been anthropomorphized out, you know, across Hinduism and Judaism and Christianity and the South American religions. Right. And you know, there's there's a lot to go into with that. That is a whole other book. So. <laughs> Maybe part yeah, two. Because I don't know if you saw the back of this, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if anyone really wants to dive into that, the book I would recommend checking out, if you can get through it, is The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross by John Marco Allegro. Um, it was written in 1970 and then was bought out by the Catholic Church and held away for 40 years. Um, gotcha. Simply because he was a Dead Sea Scrolls scholar. For 14 years he studied them and he came to the conclusion that Abrahamic religion stemmed of this kind of this mushroom fertility cult hmm. that started prior to the Sumerians and the Canaanites and all of these major cities. This is what came prior. Um, it's a wild read and it's extraordinarily complicated because he's translating from Sumerian to Aramaic to English. It got a lot of criticism, but it is certainly worth a read if this is if this has ever been your interest. Is like getting into the roots of theology and the roots of where all of this religion may have come from. Definitely. Wow. That was that was I this definitely sounds like a book that I would be interested in. So when it comes out, let me know. Yeah, we are um we're in the final editing process. We're literally going by page by page and making sure that the words are the way they cuz I I got the idea on paper okay. and I was like, "Cool." And I've had a few people read it and they're like, it's a little rushed. Let's slow it down a bit. Yeah. Let's really get people to experience this in a in a nice way where they can sit and enjoy reading it. Um, and so we're doing final edits now. The website's built, um, although I don't have it fully finished, but it is thenakedsapien.com. Okay. Um, my goal is to have it out by next year's spring. Like, okay. That's really my like window to have so that's it when we can kind of start to expect yeah it and, and i'll i'll get the instagram up and i'll start yeah. doing kind of all the marketing things i need to do but right now it's let's finish it let's get it done yeah that um, sounds really cool i feel like there's going to be a lot of 
interest and stuff. In, I, I really in hope this. so. More than anything, I just want to start discussions. Yeah. I, I just want this to... This is the perfect way to do it. Theology and philosophy yeah. are like the two biggest things that I feel like can stem... They can be controversial yeah. conversation, <laughs> but in the proper hands and the proper minds, it could also be an amazing conversation. Well, that's my so. thing. Is like, I, I really do say, like, I don't know anything. Yeah. I, I, I read a lot. I try to, but I accept that everything I have is either the story of another person or right. creation of my own mind, but it's not necessarily objective truth. Absolutely. And Which so, I respect that. Yeah, and just being able to speak about it freely and say, let's just try to understand it. Let's just begin the conversations and see where they go with the respect to the fact that you're a human being, I'm a human being. That's all that matters to me. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I can't wait to see this book come out, and I can't wait to see where this journey kind of takes you into yeah. <laughs> everything else. Um, we'll definitely have to when you when that book comes out, we'll have to have you back on yes. to do like a little uh, announcement. Yeah, thing we'll do a proper like rundown of yeah, because I left out some stuff too. That's, yeah. Um, that I really want to keep up. But at least wraps. now we know who who the author is, yeah. a little bit about you, and kind of what to expect from this book a little yeah. bit. Like a little little taste, which expect, I feel like that, that'll help. Expect me to try and be disruptive as yeah. usual. <laughs> well, I, I definitely appreciate you coming on and kind of giving a little bit more wisdom into this thing that definitely needs more wisdom on. Yeah, I, this, is, this is my dream. I, I want to be able to speak. I, I think that I've I finally accepted I have a voice that yeah. can maybe do something. Um, Absolutely. And I just need to drop the false humility and say, like, this is the path you've been given. Like, you better fucking walk it. Yeah. <laughs> you're the only one who can. Like, right. So it's just, it's really accepting my role as I see it and doing it to the best of my, my abilities. Like, Definitely. really trying to maintain my values and move forward and, and just continually try and try and try to make this place better because to me, that's, the reason like that's yeah. the reason for living absolutely well i'll have you say your yeah. little outro thing and then we'll call that a wrap all right awesome i <laughs> between the concert on friday and everything yeah. my throat is done you're good hi i'm lovey and i've just been unmasked